Hello everyone and welcome back to Thinking Deeper. As you may or may not know, my name is Jesse, and today it will all be about the famous Ted Bundy. First, we'll talk a little about how he grew up, then we'll talk about his first couple victims, and just a little bit more. Today we also have a special guest coming in, so stay tuned for that. His childhood, as he said himself, showed no signs that he would grow up to kill people, but the evidence that we found shows otherwise. His mother gave birth to him on November 24, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont. We still don't know who Ted's father was, but his mother claims that he was a sailor. We really don't know if that's true or not. When he was super young, he lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with his grandparents. The weirdest thing about that is that he thought his grandparents were his real parents and thought his mother was his sister. The thing that I'm confused about is just, did no one tell him and just let him believe that? I mean, isn't that kind of sad? He did end up finding out the truth, but we don't know when. In 1950, Ted and his mother moved to Tacoma, Washington to start a new life. Soon enough, his mother met a guy, Johnny Bundy. Johnny was a hospital cook and got married to Ted's mother in 1951. Johnny then adopted Ted and changed Ted's name to Ted Bundy. Johnny and Ted's mother then had four children together later on. There was a case that was recorded for Ted that there was a lady in Ted's area that disappeared in the early 1960s. The earliest victim could have been Ann Burr, who disappeared from her bedroom. If it was true that Ted took her, Ted would have been 14 at the time and was a delivery boy. That was really weird to hear about because Ted and I would be the same age when he did that. It's kind of creepy. Ted always denied that he was involved with her disappearing and continued to deny even until he died. It's still not confirmed if he was or wasn't involved in the disappearance of Ann Burr. In 1965, Ted enrolled at the University of Puget Sound, then transferred to the University of Washington in 1966. Soon, he got a girlfriend, who was also his classmate, but dropped out of college in 1968. He still didn't give up with school. He moved to the East and enrolled at Temple University, but only for one semester, then dropped out again. He soon moved back to Washington in 1969 and met his on-again, off-again girlfriend. Her name is Elizabeth Clofer. Here comes one of the uncomfortable parts of this podcast. In 1971, he started working at Seattle's suicide hotline. I mean, isn't that crazy? A soon-to-be murderer working at a place where people call in case they want to kill themselves. But while he was working there... He met Anne Rule, the person who would write Ted's biography, The Stranger Beside Me. Soon, Ted enrolled in college again at the University of Washington and graduated in 1972. He graduated in Washington and got in the University of Puget Sound again to study law. Now we will talk about his first attack that was recorded. But I'll have to cut it short with a special guest coming in. Hi, so can you introduce yourself a little bit, please? Uh, 
my name's James. I'm in 9B, and I like to play soccer or football. So, James, are you interested in serial killers and stuff in that general topic? Yeah, I'm actually pretty interested in it. Uh, I used to watch a lot of BuzzFeed Unsolved, if you guys know what that is. And, yeah, but, like, I don't know much about them. So, can you tell me what you know about Ted Bundy? Uh, Ted Bundy? I know that he's a serial killer and rapist. I think he had a lot of victims. And I just know that he was a monster. So, if you were one of the victims of his raping, what would you have done afterwards? Well, I would cry myself because I, I don't know how that would feel, but I think it'd be it'd feel horrible. Um, I'd probably look for someone else, to be honest, if I was a girl. Um, what else? I would probably help in like a cause. The Me Too cause, I guess. I'm not sure if I was uh, there back then, but yeah, I'd probably join that. And I'd try to look for help. Mm. And yeah. If you knew one of the victims that wasn't murdered, what would you have done to help them back in the day? So I would feel so much pity for her. First of all, second, I'd go and help her, like I'd comfort her and then I'd like do anything that's possible to help her. Um, third, I guess I would try and help her just do stuff, like not just help her, just do stuff for her. But like, I think that'd be too much. And finally, I just send her letters. Thank you, James, for letting me interview you today for the podcast. Now we will head on over to his first sexually assaulted victim. His first was in January 1974, and the victim was a student at the University of Washington. Her name is Karen Sparks. While she was sleeping, he beat her up and started sexually assaulting her. Even though she got stuck in a coma for 10 days after attack, she survived and lived with permanent disabilities for the rest of her life. About a month after the first attack, he committed a murder. He broke into the apartment of Linda Ann Healy, who was also a student at the University of Washington. Ted moved to Salt Lake City, Utah in late 1974. He enrolled at the University of Utah Law School. About a month after Ted moved to Utah, a couple young women started disappearing. One of the first was Melissa Smith, who was the daughter of a Utah police chief. But Ted actually confessed that his first victim was Nancy Wilcox. He killed Nancy two weeks before he killed Melissa. On November 8, 1974, Carol Durant was leaving a mall in Utah. Ted approached her and introduced himself as Officer Roseland and told a fake story that someone tried to break into her car. Carol agreed to go with Ted to the police station to file a report, but some things weren't feeling right for her. 
Ted tried to handcuff her in the car, but accidentally put both cuffs on one wrist. Carol was able to escape, get in her car, and get away. He didn't know at the time, but Carol would be one of the people that put Ted behind bars. While Ted was at college and murdering people, he was still linked with one of the girls that he left back home, Elizabeth Kofer. She couldn't confirm anything, but she was starting to put pieces together about all the crimes that Ted was committing. There was a file that was put out for a serial killer in the Midwest, and soon Elizabeth realized that the young women were disappearing everywhere that Ted was going. When she saw the reports, Elizabeth reported Ted to the police many times in August, November, and December of 1974. In August of 1975, Ted was driving around in Salt Lake City early in the morning and was pulled over. He was arrested and the officer searched his car and found suspicious items like ski masks and handcuffs. But they didn't have anything that was substantial enough to hold him, so Ted was released soon later. Even after he was released, the police were still suspicious of Ted. They started looking for evidence and found out that Ted was probably the most responsible for the missing woman across the Midwest. Ted sold his car in September of 1975, which was the car that he tried to use to kidnap Durange. The police got it from the new buyer and found a hair that could be traced back to multiple women. In October, Ted was put in a lineup and Durant identified him as Officer Rosalind. He was put to jail, but he was freed on bail. Ted stood trial for Durant's kidnapping in February of 1976 and was found guilty. He was sentenced to serve from 1 to 15 years in Utah State Prison. But while he was in jail, he was also charged with the murder of Karen Campbell. He committed that murder when he was in Colorado, and was then transferred to a prison in Aspen, Colorado. In June of 1977, Ted was transferred to a courthouse for a hearing. He was his own attorney, and during a break, he asked to visit the library to research his case. There, he hid behind a bookcase, climbed out a window, jumped from the second story of the building, and escaped. He broke his ankle when he fell, but he still went past the courthouse roadblocks and into the woods for six days. He stole a car and broke into a camping trailer for supplies. But not long after, two police officers spotted him and took him. Ted went back to jail. In December of 1977, he got through a hole in his ceiling into the room above of him. He got a map of the jail somehow. He changed into street clothes and walked out the front door of jail. No one even realized he was gone until the next day. Since he was free, he caught a bus to Denver, then took a flight to Chicago and a train to Ann Arbor. He stole a car and drove to Atlanta and finally took a bus to Tallahassee. 
once he was in Florida, he tried to get a real job, but he couldn't get in. So he went back to life of crime. Ted found a room to stay in by the Florida State University's Chi Omega sorority. On January 15, 1978, he broke into the sorority house where he killed two young women while they were sleeping. He attacked two more. He attacked another woman after he left the house, but that one survived. He was scared that the police were going to get him, so he tried to leave Tallahassee. On February 12, he was pulled over since the car that he was driving was identified as stolen, and then he got arrested again. In June of 1979, Ted was put on trial for the Chi Omega murders. He was convicted of two counts of murder, three counts of attempted first-degree murder, and two counts of burglary. He was given the death penalty. In February of 1980, Ted was put on trial for another murder that he committed in Lake City, Florida. But during the trial, Ted got married. His girlfriend, Carol Ann Boone, was testifying on his behalf. So Ted asked her to marry him, and she said yes. Now you might be wondering, who is this girl? I thought he was dating that other girl. Well, this is another girl. Yeah. They were dating in secret, and the girls didn't know about each other. Ted was sentenced again for kidnapping and killing Kimberly Leach, and his sentence was death by electrocution. In 1982, Carol gave birth to a daughter and claimed that Ted was the father, even though he was serving his sentence. The daughter's father has never been confirmed if it was Ted or not. In 1984, the guards at the prison discovered that Ted was trying to saw through the bars of his window to try and escape, and they also found that the mirrors in his cell was relocated. He never really escaped, but he did try. From around 1984 to 1989, he started confessing for the crimes that he would commit. Ted took responsibility for pretty much every murder that he was suspected for, and also confessed some more that authorities had no idea about. The night before his execution, they gave him a choice for his last meal. Ted refused to pick something, and he just chose the standard concoction. Steak, eggs, hash browns, and toast. His body was filled with nerves and anxiety he didn't even pick at his food. Ted died hungry. Out of all the people that were outside, 42 witnesses came and watched Ted's death. Here are what some of them said. This is the first one. I'd like to give my love to my family and my friends, he said. With that, it was time. A last thick strap was pulled across Bundy's mouth and chin. The metal skull cap was bolted in place its heavy black veil falling in front of the condemned man's face. This is the second one. Barton gave the go-ahead. An anonymous executioner pushed the button. 2,000 volts surged through the wires. Bundy's body tensed and his hands tightened into a clench. A tiny puff of smoke lifted from his right leg. This is the third one. 
A minute later, the machine was turned off, and Bundy went limp. A paramedic opened the blue shirt and listened for a heartbeat. A second doctor aimed the light into his eyes. At 7.16 a.m., Theodore Robert Bundy, one of the most active killers of all time, was pronounced dead.